From age eight and onwards, I was walking around in the paddock, and they thought, what, what is this little boy doing here? He seems lost. No, he's part of the package. He's, his dad works here, so he always walks around. So I was sitting in the cars and uh, asking for stickers. So my first English words was, may I have some stickers? This is Get to Know an Average Joe, where we discover that everyone's story is worth telling. Today, we're going to meet Peter Linder, kind of renaissance guy. And we're going to hopscotch from car racing, telecoms, to travel and book tips. I'm Dodie Axe, and I'm glad you're along for this. Peter Linder, welcome to Get to Know an Average Joe. Thank you very much, Dodie. You are a resident of Texas. Uh, we are in Stockholm in the month of May, and it hailed today. Were you in that? Did you see that? Yes, I went out, took a walk this morning. It was two degrees centigrade, 36 Fahrenheit. It was cold. Right. And how do you react? Flakes. Well, I saw snowflakes and then hails. I learned that hail, we call it sleet. It was cold. I didn't expect that in, in Sweden in May. But as a Texas resident, you just don't see that kind of weather anymore, do you? Well, we see hail, but then it's golf ball size. Mm. So we had a hail uh, a storm coming through uh, Dallas a couple of uh, weeks ago. One of my colleagues got his uh, car ruined, $7,000 to get it fixed. And the bad part is not that it costs you a fortune. The really bad part is that you're not alone driving into the car dealer with uh, hail damages. There was tons of cars with the same symptom. <laughs> All right, so I guess different weather causes different problems. You don't sound very Texan. So tell us where you come from. Yeah, I try to polish away my Texas, deep Texas accent. Uh, I'm Swedish from the beginning. I was born and raised in a place called Anderstorp, most well known for a couple of crazy guys that built a racetrack there in the 1960s. And that racetrack hosted the Swedish Grand Prix in Formula One and uh, MotoGP or Road Racing World Championships for a number of years. But doesn't anymore? Uh, the track still exists, but uh, they don't host uh, that kind of big races any longer. Okay. I don't even know where that is, and I've been in Sweden 20-plus years. Where is it? Uh, you go from Stockholm, you go south to Jönköping, and then you continue another 80 kilometers south of that. Uh, small town with 5,000 people. But does that mean as a little boy you had an exceptional obsession with fast cars, or how did you grow up then? So I saw the first race when I was three. When the first Formula One race was when I was eight. So um, I brought it up second day in school that we should bring up English from third grade to first grade. Because dad had told me that the people, the Formula One people, they only spoke English. So and my dad was in charge of the timekeeping there. So from age eight and onwards, I was walking around in the paddock, uh, mostly alone. And they thought, what, what is this little boy doing here? He seems lost. No, he's part of the package. He's, his dad works here, so he always walks around. So I was sitting in the cars and uh, asking for stickers. So my first English words was, may I have some stickers? <laughs> <laughs> and what did your third grade teacher say when you said, I think we should start learning English in first grade? Well, she uh, called my dad in the evening and wondered why, why I come up with those kind of crazy ideas. And uh, my dad told her that, no, we, we talked about this, the teams, and um, that he wanted to make sure that he could talk to them. So I was a little bit concerned that I couldn't do that. And th this was a year ahead of the first event. So. Wow. So why did you grow up as an engineer then and not as a race car something, whatever, with race cars? Yeah, my first, uh, my first um, career idea was to become professor in aerodynamics. 
because I understood that aerodynamics was very important for uh, race cars. Uh, but I think my dad told me that it was very hard to earn money in that uh, in that sport back then, at least. Then it was was before it was as super professional as it is today. Right. And so now, as an engineer. You have had an opportunity to stay a little bit close to Formula One, haven't you? Now I've had the opportunity. The, the preseason testing for the cars is normally the same week as Mobile World Congress. So I've stayed a day or two extra to go out there. And, and that is, by the way, the world's largest telecom conference in Barcelona. It is. Mm. And uh, a lot of people felt that that was a little bit crazy when I brought, dragged them out to the, to the track there. But we've been there a couple of years. And... Uh, Last year, I uh, decided to spend a whole day with one of the teams. So I figured out that they were doing their, um, getting their hospitality services up to, to speed ahead of the season at a lot lower prices. So I went uh, spent um, a full day with one of the teams in the pits. Wow, so backstage again. Backstage is a little boy and backstage just last year. Yeah. I mean, what did that feel like? It felt absolutely fantastic, and they they told them when I when I signed up for it that uh, well we start at at nine, but you can come whenever you want, and you can leave essentially when, whenever you want. So I was there at eight and left at six. <laughs> <laughs> Does, do you still have a sense of wonder about the racing world, or do you feel like you've seen it all? No, I don't feel I've seen it all. I've uh, seen uh, I've seen Monaco's Grand Prix, which was is one of my favorite in Formula One. I see Canada and the U.S. every year, and uh, I hope we'll be able to see Mexico for the first time this year. And I've seen Indy 500, and this year I'm going to bring over my sister and her husband and their boys together. My wife, we're going to go there. To the Indy 500. To the Indy 500. And are you mixing work with that? Because there's a little there's a little telecom business going on there too. Perhaps I need to check that out. I haven't mixed it up so far. It was uh, the reason I'm going there this year was one of my favorite drivers in Formula One and his team, McLaren and Fernando Alonso decided to to go there. So it took me around two days to make up my mind that I'm going to go and see it. And then I called my sister, it's her birthday the weekend after, and I said, well, why don't you take your family and get over to Indianapolis? We're going to have some fun. So they're coming over for the weekend from Sweden. And did she grow up with the same race car uh, obsession and maybe, I, I call it backstage, but you had a better word for it. Well, we, we call it in the, in the paddock or in the, in, in, the, in the pits. That's like when you're walking around where the teams are fixing with the cars. And that was back in those days, it was way very, very open. So you can walk in. My sister was part of it. She was a little bit younger when it all started. So, but she had, she's recovering nowadays. So she's involved in all the races that are taking place right now. How so? Now there are races in our hometown every year, not world championships, but uh, European world championships and so on. She's always out there and, and fixing stuff. Following your dad in his career yeah. footsteps? Yeah, we were, we were very influenced by that. So our dad was in charge of the, of the timekeeping back then and we were pulled in so me and my friends from age 16 the motorcycle world championships we were we were the team that was doing the the work behind the scenes you know you're making every boy every grown man je so jealous right now describing this yeah i know but this we, we had uh, we had a lot of fun but uh, so the the thing but we had to lure on the people with the great party on the saturday so um it was uh, it was the whole town lived up this is a town with 5000 people and uh, race days in the Formula One, it was 40,000 people in town. Incredible. And the hotel had eight rooms. 
people in, in, uh, in general, they rented out their um, couple of rooms in their houses right. to, to host a lot, lot of the people. And uh, right. there were drivers, there, were, there, was, there was no The hope. original Airbnb perhaps was in... There, there was Airb- Airbnb in, in the 70s, right. for sure. Right. <laughs> so you are still traveling around watching races, but uh, travel is a big part of your professional life as well. Is that right? Yeah, I think travel is a big part of both my professional and private life. So I think I'm, I consider myself as a traveler. Quantify that. What does that mean? In 2006, we were going to Venezuela. I was going there together with a colleague, and we were very, very delayed on our flight from Sweden. So I think we were sitting. We concluded that we have seven hours to spend in Paris and then another 11 hours to fly. So we started to talk about, well, how many airports have you been to? And I said, I have no clue. What about you? No, I don't know neither, but we can start to count. <laughs> so we took a timetable uh, at the airport and started to, okay, I've been to Paris, I've been to London Heathrow, I've been to... So we started to, with the highlight. The easy ones, you started to knock off the easy with ones. The, yeah. Started to knock off the easy ones. Took around a month before you had, uh, yeah, before you remembered, like the school trip in third grade where you were flying somewhere or... In uh, an airport that you took uh, took a little bit while of you to uh, to remember, so after around a month we had a, a pretty solid list of how many airports we'd uh, visited lifetime, and we restricted it to those ones with a three-letter code. <laughs> there's nine thousand four hundred of those, and then there's four-letter codes, but those are really teeny tiny airports. Uh-huh. So we restricted to the three-letter okay. codes. And of those nine thousand. I've been to 191. Okay. So most people count continents or countries, but Peter Linder counts airports. Peter Linder counts airports. Okay. And he also, for other people that say they're traveling a lot, he always asks the question, so how many airports have you been to? <laughs> and uh, it's very hard for people that travel a lot to not start counting. Right. And it's very addictive. Like if you get to 120 and you go to bed. Right. You, you're just seeing airports you the whole not you stay away do you reminisce about airports that have been remodeled let's say O'Hare and do you think oh man that airport before they built the third runway yeah yeah so we we, we decided to count if you've been to I think it's Kuala Lumpur that uh, that have the same abbreviation KUL mm-hmm. but where they moved the airport those mm-hmm. one counts as two and so you, do- you were able to double up on Kuala Lumpur. I think I'm double up on Kuala Lumpur. Uh, I've got the two ones in Oslo and Norway. And, um, was so it, is it uh, Bangkok as well? Bangkok moved its airport? Yeah, Bangkok has moved. I think I might be mixing up Bangkok and, and Kuala Lumpur, but one of them at least have, uh, mm-hmm. have moved. And you are a million-mile club member, are you not? Yes, I'm, I'm a mil- million, million miler, but the million, it's, it's fairly easy. One of my... Uh, former colleagues in Dallas is at eight million right now, oh, and the uh, the craziest one I've met is also a, a former colleague. He um, he was at eleven million miles last time I spoke to him, but he was selling submarines in Australia from traveling from Sweden for a number of years. As one does selling submarines in Australia. Okay, I'd like to meet this person. Uh, and hear about that career. He can he can tell you a lot about traveling too. Mm. The flip side of that is how do you have a good quality of life? So how is your quality of life? I think it's my quality of life pretty much came from a, from a trip because I met my wife on an airplane. It was an 88-minute flight from Kansas City to Dallas. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and um, I um, I use my I think you have a choice when you're traveling a lot what you're going to use your time for. Some people um, watch movies, have a drink or two, and um, use their flying time for that. Other people um, take a lot of work with them, read a lot of work paper, and, and crunch off a lot, a lot of mails. When I'm traveling, I uh, I'm trying to write blogs. It gives me so I have a lot of ideas when I get onto a plane. Sometimes if I haven't been flying in a while, I'm excited to be able to, to write because I, I found for me it's the environment to 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 write blogs. I think regarding um, quality of life, um, my wife flies a lot as well, so uh, we try to use it in in a way that we support each other. So sometimes when I'm flying out at eight o'clock and she's landing at five o'clock, we have dinner at the airport. You have you have to pay attention to it, and I think we are lucky in the sense we we we'll, we travel a lot for business, but it doesn't wear us out. So let's hear some travel tips. Uh, how do you avoid jet lag? Well, depending a little bit, if you're a business traveler that you're flying a lot east west east west east west, try to stay as little time as possible in the destination as you can. Most people think, well, if I go to Brazil, then I should be there for a whole week. I've done day trips to Brazil from Sweden. I've done day trips to Singapore from Sweden. There's a lot of people, places where you can go in, do your pre-meeting in the morning, the customer meeting in the afternoon, and then go back. Mm-hmm. Because then the jet lag, well, doesn't really hit you. It's, it's, it's tough. It's just plain old exhaustion. <laughs> it's plain old exhaustion, <laughs> but it, you, you don't have, have jet lag afterwards. Uh, when I'm flying from the U.S. to Sweden, now normally try to f- get out at the seven o'clock flight in the evening. Mm. Uh, try to get up a little bit earlier in the mornings, the last two days. So I'm tired in the evenings when I get over here. Otherwise, trying flying eastbound is is very very hard to to get to sleep in the evenings. Right. So that that helps me a little bit. And I think find find a routine so you can well. It's easy to say just sleep on planes. But if you can get to that point where you sleep on the flights, at least a good good chunk of it, it helps a lot. What is in your suitcase? Are you a really efficient packer? Yeah, I think I'm a pretty efficient packer. I've gone I've gone around the world in 12 days with eight stops with just hand luggage. So Because you did laundry in the meantime? Or? Yeah, I'd, I'd checked out, so I had two nights, but I had a night, so enough time to get laundry. Mm-hmm. So I just packed enough to to stay between the laundry rounds. And there's room for a book in your bag because here in this room I see a, a bag. You've purchased a book, and is that something that you need to do when you're in Sweden? Is buy a book in your mother tongue? Yes. So I, I like love to go and buy some some Swedish pocket books. Can can we peek? Can we see what the what the book is? Uh, Tell us. For for today. <laughs> So this time we have just a Swedish book. One is called from John Mortensson. He, buy, he writes really excellent book about Swedish crime based in the old town in Stockholm. The second book is Marie Jungstedt. She's always bu- writing about the island Gotland. And uh, so it's uh, a lot of the Swedish crime writers there in a particular place. Jotfeldt and Rosenfeldt is a little bit in Jot and Rosenfeldt. They're a little bit interesting since they're two guys writing this together. And this one, Christoffer Karlsson, is one that I've just read uh, one before. Otherwise, I tend to go through a number of the different ones. But this helped me to to relax right. and stay in touch a little bit with my native language. I see uh, a thriller mystery theme. Yeah. And you have four books here, so you must be quite a prolific reader. Well, I 
tend to buy more books than I read. Uh-huh. It's one of my, um, and uh, now I haven't been, it was like f- five months since I was in Sweden last time. So my, I was r- running out of my supply. So I thought this is uh, hopefully going to take me quite a bit into the summer. It might be one or two of my vacation books this summer in this in this pile. You are also a prolific writer. You mentioned that you use time on airplanes to write, um, and yet your profession is quite technical. You are an engineer, are you not? Yeah, that's correct. So what's the drive to write? Where does that come from? I think that's a couple of different things. I've tried to backtrack it a little bit. When I was young, I liked to tell stories. And the storytelling was uh, something that I did a lot when I was like first grade in school. I loved to tell stories and picked up on a good joke and and and, and retell it. What uh, regarding what I'm writing, what what triggered me to write more recently was that five years ago I was asked to participate in an initiative which was about very much about communicating in different ways about new things that we normally didn't deal with in our business. So we were asked to go to the exhibitions where we normally went to the trade shows, but talk in a different way. And we were asked to go to trade shows that we have not been to and trying to make an impact. And we were asked to, to get a help establishing a footprint in the digital domain. And I didn't have a whole lot of time to travel to go to trade shows and, and develop that side of the thing. So I said, well, I can, I can go down this avenue and see what we can do in the digital domain. So I was playing around with writing blog posts, doing visuals to create a visual impression in in social media and shorter video collections. So, and I sort of got got thrilled about, it was very hard in the beginning because I felt this pressure delivering a blog every every two or three weeks was really, really tough because I was writing one at a time. I didn't have any structure, neither for my thinking around the blog or the writing of the blog. But then I tried to make that into some more kind of, I wouldn't call it mechanics, but at least had an idea. And I think the eye-opener was when I went to the bookstore and, and saw that you can, well, my was fairly big, big bookstore around. And I could find 68 books on how to write a novel. And I looked as well, if there's that many books, the structure behind writing a novel, I guess there's a structure behind blogging. So I tried to get that structure put together and now, since I more or less write on a continuous basis, is is a fun part to do. So I call it my hobby, just to keep it uh, on, on the fun side of the house. But we can find you on Ericsson's corporate blog, and we can find you on Twitter at OneLinders, yes. which is, I guess, back to little Peter Linder, who loved a good joke and could repeat it. Yep, absolutely. That's uh, took me a while. Well, I don't know if it's a great Twitter handle, but at least I spent some time thinking about it. I think it is. Yeah. I think it is. So on a favorite day, which Peter Linder comes forward the most? What do you do when you have nobody else deciding what's on your agenda for a day? Depending a little bit, then I think I'm planning for a trip. I'm planning for a trip to, to a motorsport event, bring my wife with me, she she hang around and I don't think she liked really liked the the race event, but I think she she even started to having fun by seeing me having fun. So I think uh, some of those uh, the, the several of those ingredients in in play. Super. Well, thank you so much, Peter Linder. Thank you very much, Dodi. Pleasure being here. Next time on this podcast, you'll meet Ben DeVries. 
He was new on a job, but recalled an epiphany he felt during a short time of unemployment. So I was walking on the islands and I saw everyone was so in their own world and everyone was looking at the phones and stressing and running and I was like, oh my God. More from Ben and me, Dodie Axe, next time on Get to Know an Average Joe. Now, if you'll excuse me.